Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. John 18, and it's kind of all over the place, so luckily you can follow along behind me. <laughs> uh, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Anas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Anastan sent him bound to Caiaphas, uh, the high priest. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early, it was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled. But he but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say of your own accord or do you say this of your own accord or did others say it uh, to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is the truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Good morning. <clears throat> well, if you are a visitor here or new here, 
Um, welcome. My name is Aaron Kircher. I am a member here at Rev. I've been for a little over a year now. Um, it's a great joy to have the opportunity to bring God's word to you this morning. Um, different preachers over the next couple of weeks, so if you are visiting, maybe plan on giving it a couple of weeks to get a feel for um, what's going on. Um, I'm going to start by just opening up in prayer. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to bring your word to your people. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to the great work of Christ, this humble, suffering servant that we're going to look at this morning. Help us to see the work you accomplished through him. Help us to treasure it with our lives, with how we live, with how we love. Lord, guard my lips from air that would only point to you in all that I do and say. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, I want to start this morning by taking a few minutes to re reset where we are, um, both in time and space, to capture the <clears throat> proper sense of what is going on. Um, Pastor Bren last week covered Peter's story of denial that's kind of interwoven together with the trials of Christ, and you see a, a stark contrast between Peter's denial and the faithfulness of Christ um, by having those stories woven together. There's two trials, so to speak, truth on trial in both. Peter having the opportunity to make the good confession and speak truth and take his place with Christ. The tri trial he fails, and we fail, as we saw last week, and the trials of Christ, truth embodied, a trial ordained by God in eternity past, leading straight to the cross in the greatest act of love the world has ever known. A couple of other things Peter's story does for us. It helps us establish a timeline throughout the night when it's woven together. It points to the time, uh, the rooster crowing, different things like that. But there's another thing that we see in Peter's story of his denial with Christ, and that's a sense of how dark this night really is. And it gets even darker when you reach outside of John's story and see Judas's, the betrayer's, dark night of the soul. He is experiencing, while all this is going on, a darkness that he has never experienced before. A darkness that is so overpowering that he will never see daylight again. That is the darkness that entombs these trials. The enemy loves this type of darkness because it emboldens men to do things they would never do in the light of day. This darkness empowers this mob to lie and to disregard almost every aspect of the law of the law. So this morning we're looking at the hours of between approximately 2 o'clock in the morning and 8 o'clock, 8.30, somewhere in there. Dan did a great job of putting together a chart and a timeline for us. Hopefully you can see it. Um, I just want to point out, the beginning of October of last year, we started with the Passover meal. Um, Brian started with that time. So we have been in about eight hours um, for the, since October of last year is all we've covered so far. We're going to run through about six hours this morning, um, and then Pastor Jonathan and Pastor John will take us a little bit further in, in the day. So it started at Thursday night. The preparation for Passover began around 6 o'clock, and Jesus and his disciples assemble for the Passover feast. The disciples argue over who's greatest. Jesus washes their feet. He identifies the betrayer. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He preaches the command to love. He predicts Peter's denial, and then he gives his discourse for a couple of hours in the upper room. And then the disciples and Jesus sing a hymn and depart the room close to midnight, headed to Gethsemane. So they're on the way to Gethsemane around midnight. He prays 
for his disciples, and then he prays in the garden. And then he's betrayed and arrested. That's where we were last week. And then he's brought before Annas, and that's where we'll start this morning. Um, now it's about 3 o'clock in the morning. Annas sends him to Caiaphas. He's condemned and mistreated by the Sanhedrin throughout the night. We see Peter's denial right before daybreak. And Judas goes out and commits suicide right before daybreak as well. So at 6 o'clock then, the Sanhedrin takes Jesus. The courts open, the Roman courts open. So Jesus appears before Pilate right around 6. Pilate sends him to Herod, hoping he can um, defer a decision. Herod quickly sends him back. And then that's where we're going to end our time, around 8 o'clock Friday morning, just a couple of hours before Christ will be on the cross. So I hope that was helpful to kind of see where we've been and what we've been doing. And we've been focusing on really a brief amount of time. Brent also mentioned last week that there was a lot of, of um, walking in these times, going back and forth to different places. And here's a map out of the uh, um, ESV study Bible that just shows how much movement was taking place from the Garden of Gethsemane at one. We don't know where Annas was. Uh, two is the palace of the high priest, would have been Caiaphas, um, back to the Praetorium or some place where he was on trial with the Sanhedrin, back to Caiaphas, then before Pilate, then to Herod, and then finally all the way up to Golgotha. So a very strenuous night, no sleep, been up for a long time. And keep that in mind, even the, the high priest, the mob that's assembled, they've been up for a long time too. Nobody's in their right mind. So that's the setting, that's where we're at. Early, early morning, a deep darkness, and a mob has assembled and arrested Jesus. And we're gonna look at the trials this morning. I'm gonna say trials, so when I put it in air quotes, I mean the opposite um, of, of what it is. And I say trials because they have more in common with kangaroo courts or mob justice than they do with a reasonable justice system. And there was a time in our country when this sort of justice was more prevalent. From the NAACP website, it says this about that disgusting and shameful time in our history. From 1882 to 1968, 4,743 lynchings occurred in the U.S., according to records maintained by the NAACP. Black people were the primary victims of lynching, 3,446, or about 72% of the people lynched were black but they weren't the only victims of lynching. Some white people were lynched for helping black people or for being anti-lynching. That's a terrible, shameful, sinful time in our history. I'm thankful it's documented and pray we never return to that time when anything like that would occur. But let's look at what a lynching was and kind of compare it as the pattern to these trials that we're gonna look at. The pattern of a lynching is usually the same, as the same elements. Usually a mob is formed and grows throughout the events. An accusation is made against a person of color in America's historical past. A quick ruling of guilty and a penalty of death was passed down on the defendant by the mob. Often police were involved in these events to give some appearance of official justice, but no real due process occurs when a mob is dispensing the justice. These proceedings then culminate in a murder. Typically, the nearest stout tree is used to hang the individual. And other times, death by stoning, death by burning might occur. On the, on the website, it also said that photos of lynching were often sold as souvenir postcards. And they had some posted on the website, and they are awful to behold. Very, very sad, very shameful time in our history. In our passage this morning, we have, in a sense, a postcard as well, though, as we look at what this mob does 
in lynching Christ. All the elements of a lynching are there. They track down Jesus in the garden in the middle of the night and arrest him with no charges being made. <coughs> Next is a number of trials. Accusations are made, most of them false. The only true accusation is that Christ believed he was the Son of God. The final trial with Pilate, in which Pilate declares no less than six times across all the Gospels that Jesus is innocent, finally offers up Christ to be released, yet the mob cries for the release of Barabbas, a robber and murderer. And then, as you know, Pilate, fearful of the mob, gives Jesus the death penalty, and finally, the execution. Christ executed, nailed to a cross, lifted up for all to see. All the elements of a, of a lynching, a mob, no mercy, no order, and no truth. So we'll start back in our passage in John this morning then, John 18, 12 through 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Anas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So these three verses are a summary of what's going to be unpacked later. But we see a couple of things, as in most things, politics reign at the end of the day, and though Caiaphas is currently the high priest, Jesus is first taken to his father-in-law, we're told. So Caiaphas held the position of high priest proper, but we would refer to Annas as probably the shadow government um, behind him, the deep state. And so that's how the path goes. First, the prior high priest to be examined before continuing to the current high priest. In the scene, we see no accusations, no judgment, but John does add some really good color commentary. He tells us that this is the same Caiaphas who has advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. He points us back to what he wrote previously in chapter 11, verses 49 through 53. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to him, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So I love the commentary that from John that Caiaphas had in his role as high priest, not said of his own thinking or out of his own wisdom, but that the Spirit of God moved him to prophesy it. And indeed it will be right, John tells us, that one die to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas, as high priest, was a Sadducee, and they were the liberal party more concerned with their political standings and their wealth in Rome and position than they were of their standing before God. So, in his mind, this is what he's saying when he says, it is better for us that Jesus dies than it is for all of us to be killed by Rome because of him. But John tells us he's prophesying that Christ will die for the nation. And I think John points back to this to make sure we don't have the mistaken thought that this is a legitimate and fair trial or hearing that's taking place. And so he says in verse 53 of chapter 11 that from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So this is a lynching. Moving on to verse 19, the high priest, and this is Annas now, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? 
Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So now we get a view into the first trial. So a couple of things to note right off the bat. Under Jewish law, trials at night were not permitted. They were not legitimate. They were not recognized as a legal trial. Daylight needed to be there. People needed to be able to come and see what was going on and to testify. And that can't happen in the deep darkness of night. Um, which is why first thing in the morning they're going to have to go to Pilate to le- legitimize the night's events. Next, much like our Fifth Amendment in Jewish law, you could not be forced to testify against yourself. Like our legal system, you are innocent until proven guilty, and you cannot be forced to incriminate yourself. So you see Anas doing that to Jesus, trying to get him to defend himself, to speak. The assumption with this trial is that Jesus is guilty. They are calling on him to testify. They have put the burden of proof on him to prove his innocence. Jesus points out that he speaks openly before the world. Jesus is saying, if you're going to do this, do this the right way. Go get witnesses. There should be no shortage of them. I speak openly all the time, not in secret. An appropriate pushback to an illegal line of questioning. And then we see the first of many physical abuses Jesus will endure throughout the morning with a guard who rightfully interprets that Jesus is correcting Annas, but wrongly strikes the defendant. Such things, again, were not permitted in Jewish law. In response, Jesus Jesus succinctly restates his case. If I'm wrong, bring witnesses and prove it. Otherwise, don't hit me. I'm going to insert some application right here in our passage so we can continue to hear that as we go through the morning. Here's something to keep in mind as we watch the suffering and false accusations that come against Christ. The frenzied attempts of the mob to find something that sticks, that has some semblance of justice. Christ suffered and was lied about and was abused, not so we would not have to suffer or not have to endure false accusations ourselves. It happened to make Christ an example for us so that we might follow in his steps when we're lied about and when we're reviled. It happened, we're reminded by Peter, that not only did Christ not return evil for evil, he made no defense for himself, and he just appealed to truth. And he did all that while bearing our sins. That we might die to our sins and live to righteousness. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 19-24, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to, you, or for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself for our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, those wounds, we have been healed. 
We do not have a Savior who is unfamiliar and unaware of these things. Quite the contrary, we have a Savior who endured these things, going to the cross, dying in our place, never sinning, bearing our sins, always seeking the glory of the Father. Know this, beloved brothers and sisters, Christ is familiar with your suffering. When men plan evil deeds and violate rules of law and even common decency and attack and lie and so harm, it is not foreign to Jesus. He suffered as we did. He suffered greater than we did, as you all know. But we have the opportunity to look at this event and thank God for the sufferings of Christ. We can cry out, as the psalmist does, to draw near to us on our trials, and we can be sure to know that he is near. Many things in my life I wish I had walked out better to make sure there was no deceit in my mouth, not reviling in return, not running mob trials in my head against people, wishing, wishing I could say the right thing and destroy their credibility. I want to do a better job of following the example of my Savior. I sinned greatly against a member of my family this week, one I was charged to care for and nurture and love and be an example to, and I sinned grievously against them. Probably more events than that one, but one sticks out to me. And if you, like me, are feeling the effects of sin like that now, or if you have been attacked and lied about, look to the event of the railroading of Jesus Christ. Men had a predetermined outcome, very little appearance of true justice, false accusations, and unjust dispensing of punishment. Christ endured much worse than any of us would hope to be able to endure. Look to him and be comforted. Look to him and do not sin. If you've experienced this ever, I'm sorry. And worse, if you've experienced this at the hands of men who claim to be godly and whitewash their words and actions with the gospel while dispensing false justice, I am very, very sorry. That should not happen. It must be grievous to experience that level of pain. Look to Christ, hope in God, and be mindful this morning that one of the things God is doing in this event is giving an example in Christ of how we are to suffer. Next, we transition to Jesus before the council. And to see that, we really have to look outside of John's gospel to Matthew and Mark's accounts, because John doesn't cover it all. So briefly, because of the, the time, but I want to look at the information that comes from it, because it fits right in. It gives us even a broader picture of what's happening to Christ. In haste, the council, the Sanhedrin, is convened under the leadership of Caiaphas. The council is made up of 71 individuals, including the chief high priest. And Mark tells us all of them were there. This is to show or help us in understanding that this is a sanctioned event, even though it's happening illegally. Any rulings from this body will be official and final, even if done illegally under cover of darkness. In Mark 14, starting in verse 56, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So we have more evidence that this is a mob at work and not a carefully crafted strategy unfolding. We see that in their frenzy to condemn him, the witnesses can't even their lies consistent. If they wanted to do this with the appearance of being a real trial, they'd have staged the event during the day. They would have paid off witnesses. They're very willing to do that. We know that already. They would have made sure the accounts were consistent. And it would have been a public legal hearing. 
And the funny thing about this is that the council, or the actual mob, in their thinking, they're thinking they're forced to dispense this justice in the dark because they're afraid if they do it publicly in the daytime, that event would arouse a mob. <laughs> the mob defined in their thinking is any group of people that would prevent them from doing what they think is right, which is to execute Jesus, have him put to death before the end of the day so they can enjoy their Passover meal in peace. Continuing in Mark 14, verse 61, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Excuse me. They know the testimony is inconsistent. They know it's not a legal trial. They don't care. This is what they predetermined to do back in John 11. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They pronounce the death sentence, and so begins the scourging and the abuse and mockery that will last the next three or four hours. Blasphemy is the formal reason that the council finds is worthy of death, but they will have to deliver him to Pilate, and a different charge will be inferred, and that is that he is an insurrectionist, that he's against Rome. And here's the problem that can only be remedied by the Romans executing Jesus. Jewish law requires that for blasphemy he be cast down, and stoned to death for, for his sin. But we know that the Son of Man must be lifted up in the end. Jesus, when speaking with Nicodemus, says in John 3, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's not only important that we understand that it is better for one man should die for the people, but the manner of his death is important. In John 12, 32, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So to Rome we must go. Another reason it's important that we look inside, outside of John's account was to see that the Jews had been the one that condemned Jesus to death. Otherwise, without that contest, context, we might get the mistaken impression that Rome or even Pilate alone was responsible for the death of Jesus. The early church in what is known and accepted to be the Apostles' Creed says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And while it's true that he suffered under Pilate, the suffering happened because the Jews requested it. And being a weak man and fearing the mob, more than he desired to see justice done, Pilate relents and condemns Christ to death. Now it's also important to note that the Jewish leaders did this because it was the will of God to do it. Now saying it was the will of God does not mean he violated their conscience or directed them or goes against their wills, but he used their wicked schemes and desires to accomplish his glorious purpose. In Acts 4, 26-28, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is the plan 
and purpose of God, that one should die for many, and that we should be one in him. The Jewish leaders conspired in hatred to do evil to Jesus. Pilate in weakness refuses to dole out justice, justice and instead succumbs to fear. Doing the thing he most desires to do, which is to avoid an insurrection by the frenzied mob, and all of it happens because ultimately it's God's design. It's his plan to make right through the second Adam what the first Adam had failed to do those many years ago in the garden. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, will be the final sacrifice, having lived a perfect life, the life we should have lived, and dying a death that we deserve to die in our place, absorbing and exhausting the wrath of God. That we might be justified, that is, legally sin-free before God. And this is good news. This is good news for all and it very well may be good news for those who I talked about a few minutes ago who persecute us and lie about us, who would seek to, to harm our character, tear us down and others, those who make false claims and pass down unjust penalties. The good news about the good news is that there is no sin that is greater than the grace God gives. No one has ever done anything that is so awful as to be moved beyond God's grace. You cannot out the grace of God. If you needed to hear that, I hope you did this morning. The gospel is good news. If you need to understand it more, find someone after the service and ask them, please. So the Jews have finally gotten to what this has all been about, and they have condemned Jesus to death. The problem is, about three years prior to this, their right to execute someone had been revoked by Caesar. They could condemn Christ in word only, a Roman court would have to agree with that judgment after an investigation of their own and be the ones to execute whatever judgment they found. So at six in the morning when the Roman courts open, they take Jesus to turn him over for examination. Verse 28 of 18, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, around six o'clock. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusations do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So court is in session. Finally, an official court, a formal court, but the first thing we need to notice is the actions of the Jewish leaders. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So, get this straight. At night, they have arrested Jesus, had a mock trial, falsely accused him, straight out lied, allowed the defendant to be abused, all violations of Jewish law. But they don't want to defile themselves and miss out on the Passover meal by going into Pilate's headquarters because that would make them unclean. The mental gymnastics you have to do to, not, to seek the execution of an innocent man and not worry about that causing you to be defiled but not going into a Gentile's house because it might pose a risk to participating in the feast are Olympic-level gold medal performances of mental gymnastics. Okay? Nevertheless, this is a mob, so we don't look for consistency from them. They're hypocrites. All they know is it's too great a risk to show that they participated with a Gentile, and so they're going to stay outside. 
And it's important to note, Pilate is no fan of the Jews. He's not a willing participant in this charade. And you sense his frustration of going in to question Jesus and then back out to talk to the Jews to get their thoughts. And Jewish and other historical documents record that Pilate had dis- displeased his boss, Julius Caesar, the emperor, multiple times. He'd not been able to control one uprising already and would lose the job of co- governor in the next couple of years. So he was a very poor leader. Jesus, still bound presumably, is taken in, and Pilate sees him and goes out to see what the Jews want. Pilate, at this point, rightly wants to adjudicate the case, and so he seeks to find out what the charges are. And listen to the response of the Jewish leaders. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So no charges, no accusations, just a bunch of overtired, whiny men with no patience that just want Jesus dead. They're frustrated already that Pilate's not rubber-stamping their decision. He deserves death. That's been decided. It's as if they're saying to Pilate, he's the one on trial, not us. And Pilate's response is appropriate. You can hear the frustration. And justice says he should have ended it right there and walked away. He responds, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. A just response. Should have sent him back and washed his hands at that point. But since we all know this is not the coordinated plans of man, but the perfect will of God coming to fruition. Pilate cannot run from his weak flesh, and he capitulates and attempts to get to the bottom of it. Next, the mob says to Pilate, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So Pilate now understands why they've brought Jesus to him. They expect Pilate to condemn Jesus to death, even death on the cross, which again is ultimately the will and purposes of God. Finally, John adds that this was all more fulfillment of prophecy, more evidence that Christ was who he said he was. This was to fulfill the the words that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Matthew, in verse 2 of chapter 26 of his gospel, captures Jesus saying this, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Continuing on in John in 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate responds, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So Pilate comes back to Jesus and asks the question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus needs clarification. He needs to know why Pilate is asking the question, because the answer is yes one way and no another way. So Jesus answers, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? If Pilate is doing his own investigation and asking on behalf of Rome, are you a threat to Caesar in your claim to be king of the Jews? Are you here to lead an uprising? The answer to that question is no. 
Jesus is not here to go to war with Rome. But if Pilate is asking on behalf of the mob if he is the king of the Jews, then that answer is most certainly yes. Pilate responds, am I a Jew? So now Jesus has his answer. Pilate is trying to understand why the Jews so hate this man. So he very carefully answers, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus' answer is careful to explain that his followers, maybe with the exception of Peter earlier this morning, have never entered into any sort of aggression against Rome or the Jews. But he did have a kingdom, and that makes him a king. Then Pilate questions for clarity. So you are a king. And it's difficult to infer what tone from the written word, whether it's said in declaration, in irony, or in question. We don't know, but Jesus responds. And the response to this question by Jesus is one of the most profound and revealing responses we see about the mission of Christ to the world. So we know and we celebrate and remember when we gather that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We remember that about Christ's mission. We have hope and eternity with God in that. But listen to what Jesus says about why he came. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So for starters, this claim of truth is a stark contrast to everything we've seen to this point. Truth had been present through the night only in the form of Jesus' presence at the trials. The false accusation, Peter's denial, Judas' betrayal, all in opposition to truth. Here, Jesus, as he reveals his mission statement, why he came, Christ aligns himself with objective, eternal truth. And Pilate responds with what is truth. And we ask along with Pilate, what is truth? Difficult to hear a tone from Pilate if it's a scoff or if it's a genuine question. And we need to understand it even if Pilate doesn't want to because Pilate makes that statement and turns and walks away. The response to this question by Jesus, in my opinion, is one of the most profound. Oh, what is truth? We understand that even if Pilate didn't want to. So it's an important question. And my original plan when I approached this sermon was to kind of take this camera and look at truth and look at what it is and then interpret all of the rest of the events. And the Lord directed me a different way, and that's fine and good. But we still need to understand what is truth. So... Dr. Stephen Lawson sums up for us all the objective written things about truth. What is truth? It is defined as that which conforms with fact or reality. It is genuineness, veracity, or actuality. In a word, truth is reality. It is how things actually are. Theologically, truth is that which is consistent in the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. Truth is the self-disclosure of God himself. It is, what it, it is what it is because God declares it so and made it so. All truth must be defined in terms of God, whose very nature is truth. Pilate had an audience with truth embodied and could have received an answer to the greatest question could be asked of Jesus, what is truth? But like many in our day, instead he appears to scoff at the idea of an objective reality and turns and walks away from Christ. 
In the Gospels, Jesus is captured as saying, I tell you the truth over 75 times. And in John's Gospel, he captures Jesus saying, truly, truly, 25 times. Truth is fundamentally about who God is. And that is why Jesus came, that we might know truth through his Son. We testify to truth many times a day, hopefully. In the service, we'll do it many times. The word amen is the Hebrew word truth. And so when we end our prayers, we are declaring that whatever we have prayed, whatever we have given to God, is his truth. Amen, Hebrew, veritas, Greek, truth. It appears in the other Gospels, though not captured in John's telling, it is at this moment that Pilate realizes Jesus is a Galilean. And he sends Jesus to Herod, whose purview includes Galilee. Herod, whose heart is already very hard, as we see in the story of the beheading of John the baptizer, has a quick chat with Jesus and sends him back to Pilate. John doesn't include it, probably nothing, because nothing of any sort of relevance happened in that trial. I mentioned it earlier in the sermon that around six times during the Roman trial, Pilate says in some fashion that Jesus is not guilty, and he's looking for any way to not follow through on the request to condemn Jesus to death. Any way except confront the mob and tell them he will not condemn an innocent man. So Pilate tries another tactic to not have to kill Jesus. I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cry out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So we're told Barabbas was a robber, a thief, and an insurrectionist when you combine the testimony of all four Gospels. He was also a murderer. Jesus was brought to the Roman court with the underlying charge that he was an insurrectionist, right? That's the inferred charge. That's why Pilate is trying to understand the title of king of the Jews. So the mob, in its frenzy, cries out, having been stirred up by the Jewish leaders, to release Barabbas, who is actually guilty of the very crime they accused Jesus of, even though he was innocent. Don't look for consistency or logic from the mob. The mob has an end in mind, a singular focus, and they push for it at all costs. The end they wanted was Jesus dead, and it's not beyond their conscience. Finally, I'll note that the name Barabbas means son of God. So what would have been cried out by the mob was, don't give us Jesus, the son of God. Give us Barabbas, the son of God. The mob always exchanges the truth for a lie. Here that you have an example in Christ of how to suffer, how to endure hardships and false accusations. Christ did that with this mob, with these men, and he did it while bearing our sins. What a remarkable thing God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work and example of Jesus Christ who came and even through the end lived perfectly, never sinning, honoring you perfectly in all that he did, setting himself as an example before us. Lord, as we go into our week, let us think and dwell on where we have attempted to enact a lynching, whether it be in our mind or actually where we have sinned in not following the example and forgiving those who would sin against us in that way. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. Amen.
thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God 